we read from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. We have the parallel account in Luke, yet here in uh, Mark we have it explained in a little greater detail. So we're going to read it from Mark and be preaching from Mark here. Starting with verse 14. When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And often he has thrown himself both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Then he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you and we just ask for your help this morning. Lord, as we open your word, Lord, we read from Isaiah 55 how your word will go out and it will accomplish what you will and it will do the work you have sent it to do. And Father, we ask you, Lord, to send forth your word today with power. Lord, that it would help us to turn our eyes to the Lord and to the power of of your Son And Lord, to put our trust in him. Lord, may we cling to your side in all that happens. And Father, for myself, I as well would ask that you would guide me in speaking, that I would not add to your word or take away from it. Lord, that you would order my thoughts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We might take two weeks on this. Uh, It's a larger section. In fact, one of the very first things that uh, kind of stood out to me as I was looking through it uh, is that I think this is one of the largest sections on a demon and on demon possession in Scripture. When you look at the number of verses and what happens. Uh, It's in all three gospel accounts, as is the transfiguration. It happens right after the transfiguration. Matthew and Mark have just a couple of verses uh, that Luke does not have. Uh, If you look up in Mark here at Mark 9.9, they were coming down from the mountain. He commanded them that they should tell no man the things that they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Luke has that, but then from there on, 
uh, all the way through verse 13, 10 through 13 is, is added. Mark's giving us a picture that Luke doesn't take the time to give us. Uh, it's already been recorded in Matthew and Mark. And they ask him about Elijah coming first, and he said, yes, uh, Elijah will come first, and, uh, and he has also already come, and they understood to him that they understood he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And that's just, it took him a long time coming down the mountain. And this was part of the conversation that happens. It's interesting, in verse 14, in all three accounts, it starts with the same word. And. Now, I didn't check King James. Maybe King James has something different. But, uh, different, but it starts with the word and. It's tied in. And I think when I look at Luke, I can almost see it tied together. And you say, well, how can you see that? Well, why did he take them up to the mount? Do you remember? We talked about this. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks. Uh, they were arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And their picture of the kingdom of heaven was warped. It was an earthly kingdom. It was a kingdom with still with politics and turmoil and wars and natural disasters and sickness and death. They just wanted a natural kingdom with personal peace and prosperity, with the king ruling. This is what the Jews wanted, and if, if Christ had been willing to give that to them, they would have followed him. But that's not what he called them to do. And so as they are looking for this earthly kingdom, and especially as he tells Peter that he is... Uh, the, he tells the three of them that he's going to Jerusalem, uh, and Peter takes them aside. You can, if you're in your Bible, you can see this. Um, verse 31 of chapter 8 in Mark. Uh, he began to teach them then that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. That's the start of verse 32. And then Peter took them aside. Remember all this working up to here? Took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at, the, at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So he was calling them to follow. He had protected them when the multitude wanted him to be king after he had fed the 5,000, sending them out onto the sea. He had shown them his power so that when they started, the disciples started to leave, the others would forsake him. Peter would say, you have the words of eternal life. And they were clinging to him when he said, who do men say that I am? Peter had given the correct answer, even if he didn't quite have it in his heart the right way. You are the son of the living God. And uh, then he had given them this... this uh, this time of teaching that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And of course, Peter, you know, Lord, you can't be doing this. This isn't serious. This isn't right. And Jesus has to rebuke him. And then he comes back and he has this beautiful section in 34 through 38. And all the gospels have it. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This call... You have the wrong picture and you have to be willing to lay down your life. You have to be willing to give it up. If you're not willing, you're going to lose your life. You're not going to be walking with me. You're going to be out of step because this is not. And he, this is not what the Father has sent me to do, is to have a 
your personal peace and prosperity. And he tells them that there will be some standing there, and this is out of Luke. I'm not sure if it's here. Uh, I don't see it here. Yes, it is, 9-1. It's, in Luke, it was, it was the last verse of the previous section. Here they have separated it. In uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And he gives them this, this hope to look forward to. You're going you're gonna to get a picture of the kingdom. It's coming. And this is awesome because he, six days later, both of the Gospels, or all three of the Gospels, go straight from that verse to verse 2. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he went up to the mountain. And while he's in the mountain, he's transfigured. And in verse 3, we see his clothes become shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appears to them with Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. And you have here this, this brief corner of the kingdom of God. And I don't even have the words to describe it. It's a pocket in time where Jesus just allows them to have a glimpse of the kingdom. And what does he see? He sees the king in all his glory. He sees the saints alive and speaking to him. And the father comes and speaks in his glory. And this is where the kingdom of God is. It's not an earthly kingdom, you know, with personal peace like the Holy Roman Empire. It is a spiritual kingdom with God the Father and God the Son ruling in all their glory. And the day is coming when that kingdom will come to earth. But until that time, he wants them to know, don't, be, don't get your eyes on the things of this earth. Don't, don't look for an earthly kingdom. Keep your eyes on me. Follow me. Lay down your life. Do what I've commanded you to do. You know, don't sit here and, and weigh the balances. You know, I, man, if I follow this way, I'm going to be blessed and I'll have riches and everything else. Now, if I follow Jesus, it might cost me something. It is going to cost you something. He's, it's a promise. Lay down your life. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And then you will you will come into the kingdom. And then right after this, we have these two accounts. We have the account of the kingdom where he takes him up into the mount. And as soon as we come down, what do you, what do you have? This demon possession. And we see the kingdom of Satan. You see that? They're so focused on earth. You ask them, who's the kingdom of Satan? Oh, Rome. <laughs> Right? Rome, our oppressors. And we would never say that as Christians, would we? It, I think we could. We look at the political parties, and if it's not my party, it must be the Satan's party, right? I, don't we get our eyes on the things of this earth? And I'm not saying that there isn't sin involved here on this earth. There is certainly sin involved. But what he is doing is he is trying to open their eyes that there is so much more when God talks about the kingdom, when God has his glory, when God shows his power, and when Satan shows his power. There is behind the scenes a real, <laughs> wonderful, eternal kingdom of God 
that will shine, outshine the sun. It's going to be awesome. And there is a real kingdom of darkness that people fight against here in this world. And this is, I believe this is why this account is put in here. They are still, <laughs> I don't know if it's in here, but I know it is in, uh, yeah. Go, go ahead just to verse 33, okay, or 30. From 30 and 32, he again tells them that the, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be killed and he'll be raised again the third day. You know, that's the second time he, he speaks to them openly, telling them what's going to happen. And again, in verse 33, he comes into the Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what is it you were discussing among yourselves? And they kept silent for on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. You know, this is, you see, it, it's kind of got a bookmark on either side with these exact same things. And this is why Christ is taking them. He's showing them behind the scenes. You're, you're concerned about an earthly kingdom. Let me show you the heavenly realities. And so we've looked at the, the heavenly realities on heaven's side. And now we want to look for a week or two weeks at the heavenly realities on hell's side. If I can use that term the reality of hell, the reality of Satan, the reality of demons. You know, just about every book I have read starts with a quote like this, and I, I say that because I just want you to know I'm not the author of it, but we make two mistakes when we think about demons. First of all, we, we say that they don't really exist. You know, that was just something that happened in Christ's time, and we don't have to deal with that, and that's wrong. Because we're told that we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and high places. And that we're to take all the armor of God that we may be able to stand, having done all, to still stand in that evil day. And so you can't just say there is nothing there. There is no battle. There is no Satan. There is no demons. And the other extreme is this neo-spiritual warfare which demonizes everything, every uh, lust of the heart, every thought of the mind, every leaf that falls from the tree. Uh, you anoint your house with oil so that the demons can't come in. And when you leave it, you have to be careful because they might, they might hide out in your house while you're gone. And everything becomes something that's demonology. And this, again, is completely wrong. What we have to do is we have to go back to what God shows us. And, we, and again, I, I believe this passage here is incredibly important. This, this is, uh, you know, we have many passages where there are, uh, oh, what is it? Luke, uh, Luke 8 is one of them. That we just have an account like this in verses 1 through 2. He says, Now it came to pass afterward as he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And you have some verses like that that just are, you know, that's all it tells us. And it tells us the reality of demons that they inhabit people, um, and very little else. We also see the, uh, in Luke 9, 
1 through 2, when he called his 12 disciples together, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And there is a time when he gave them that power, and every one that they had, and again, this is before our passage today in Luke. Our passage today in, uh, in Luke is, uh, let me see if I can find the reference here real quick, Luke 9.37, and this happened in Luke 9.1. So this had happened earlier than this. But when the disciples come, of course, they have a problem, don't they? The demon doesn't leave. And this is important for us because we see that there was power given to the disciples that was a special power, a sign power. There would be other times they would cast out demons, and it's recorded. It's, I don't believe it's recorded because it's the normal way that it happened with them. I believe it was recorded because it was an outpouring of God's grace and God's mercy. And they're led to do this. They do it. They have this, this almost this sign that happens as the demon comes out. What we see here is the reality of the kingdom of Satan. And we see that it exists simultaneously here on this earth with the kingdom of God. And we see this at quite a few times that when Christ is, is teaching and Christ is in the synagogue or Christ is God with his apostles, those with the demons come before Christ. They cast themselves down at his feet or they're brought to Christ by other people. And you see them coexisting to some degree with God ruling over them and this giving us the one place I know where it tells believers what we're to do with the demon. We're to pray for him, the demon possessed. Fasting and prayer. This kind does not come out except by fasting and prayer. So this is a very good teaching. And I believe it shows the two extremes of the kingdoms that we are, you know, kind of pulls back the curtain. Uh, man, we, we are... We are a slave to our eyes. If you can show it to me, I'll believe, right? I have to see it to believe. Thomas, I won't believe it unless I can put my hand in the, his nail prints and the, into his side. And Jesus arrives and he says, okay, if that's what it's going to take, here's my hands. Here's my side. Put your fingers in and be believing. Don't be unbelieving. But we have that same problem with our eyes. And the disciples had it so bad that they were just looking who's going to be the greatest. And Christ takes this moment to show them the reality of both sides. And the sad part is, is their, their hearts are so caught up in the world that they don't even recognize what is happening. I mean, they're, they're amazed by it, but it's not until later that Peter will talk about this and he'll start to understand what God meant when he said, this is my beloved son, hear him. And he will extol the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, understanding his deity, that he is truly the son of God. So we come to this section today and they tie it together so that we can get the comparison. He comes with, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. And this is where it starts. He arrives coming off the mountain. It's taken him an entire night to get down the mountain. He arrives there. He sees the disciples. 
And uh, there's a dispute going on. And this is not something you want to see because, you know, you're hoping the disciples have the answer. They've been sent out. They've had the message. They've been listening two and a half years maybe at this point, maybe three. They were getting near the end. He's on his way toward Jerusalem. And uh, he's already started to tell his disciples that's where he's going. And he sees the, this dispute going on, and it's not just a dispute with people. They're not just talking. It's the scribes, which are part of the Pharisees. They're the, the, the readers and the recorders of the law, and they're disputing with the disciples. And you know what they're disputing over? How to cast out a demon. And we kind of, I believe that, because... Uh, he asked what they're disputing with them, and one of the crowd said, Teacher, I have brought my son. He has a demon. They can't cast him out. I've tr- I brought him to your disciples. They can't cast him out. This is what's being discussed. And the scribes had all their methodology. If we can just do these certain things, the demon will leave. And of course, it wasn't God's will. So let's read this, and we'll go through it just here real quick. And then next week, we'll, we'll take a broader picture of it. He says, um, Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? You know, it's kind of, he, he knows in his heart, but not a good thing. <laughs> and uh, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, and they could not. And we see that this this man has an accurate understanding of what happens to the best of his ability. His son has a spirit. He's recognized it. This is a deeper problem than just a physical issue. It's not that his... You know, his tongue is growing shut because of the skin. It's because of a spiritual problem. And he sees that this, uh, he'll tell us later, that the spirit will often cast him into the fire and into the water trying to kill the child. And he has this at the end of it, so I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, and they could not. And this is the issue, isn't it? His disciples had once again failed in what they were given to do. And he answered, he said, Oh, faithless generation. Faithless generation. Now, I've thought about this all week. Thought about it a little bit longer than that, probably. But this term, faithless generation, I think it's important. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's believed on in the heart. And faith without works is dead. It works its way out into action. It works its way out. And they had attempted to use the power of God, call out to the Spirit to leave. They had been granted this power at one time when they were walking with the Lord, and they thought, well, we can probably do this. And then they they could not, and they gave up. 
and you see this dispute happening. They're not still trying. They're not praying. They're not taking it to the Lord in prayer. They've given up. And this is where I, want, I think the faithless comes in. You know, I mean, a lot of people are willing to go out there and they're try something. But do you truly believe that God is able to do it and that he desires to do it? If you truly believe that, then why are you giving up and allowing this to continue? Why do you not take it to the Lord in prayer? What is the next step? Isn't it to start praying about it? Isn't it to get serious with God? I mean, to seek his face until you get an answer from heaven? I think it is. And I think that the faithless generation is not because they didn't try and not succeed, but that they gave up. They gave up. They did not look at the Lord and say, you know, I know God's kingdom comes first and God wants to glorify his name and his son is here. Let us pray. Let us take this to the Lord. Let us hold on until we hear from heaven. But instead, they walked away. You know, Christ will be down in a bit. He'll, do, he'll take care of it. And so when he comes, he does, not have an he does not have a commendation for these men who tried. He has a condemnation for them. You faithless generation. How long shall I be with you? When are, you know, I mean, I'm not here forever. How long shall I bear with you? You know, what does he desire of us? To believe him? to believe his word, to obey, to follow. And that is not something that is a one-time issue. It's not just, I do it here and then I'm done for the rest of my life. That is a continual taking up your cross and following him daily obedience, a knowing he is Lord. And so when you have a problem that you can't solve in your own strength, you don't go looking to the scribes and, you, and disputing with them over what the best way to cast this demon out is. You start taking it to the Lord in prayer. You start to call out on God. And you don't give up after the first two minutes, five minutes, three minutes, whatever it is. You hold on. You know, and I mean, this, this has depth for all of us. Do you have a son or a daughter? Do you pray once and then stop? No. We take it to the Lord daily in prayer, hourly in prayer, whenever it crosses our heart in prayer. And we continue to ask because we know that the only one who can help us in this situation is who? God. And I would rather have God's help than all the help and wisdom of this world. I would rather it depended on God's wisdom than it depended on my wisdom. And I would rather it depended on prayer than it depended on my works. And this is the condemnation. And how many of us would also come under this condemnation that we have needs and instead of taking it to the Lord in prayer, we have done what? We've talked. We've gone looking for a worldly solution. We've sound kind of accurate sometimes. It does to me. Because we have that earthly mindset sometimes the same way the disciples do. And even though we, we might know what God wants, 
we don't stick with it. And so we, under, we as well bear this condemnation. Praise the Lord, God is not limited by us. There is a man here who has a genuine need and he came to the right place seeking the right thing from the right people and even though the disciples came up short, God is still faithful. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground, wallowing and foaming at his mouth. You know, Satan does not come willingly into the presence of the Lord. He is not a fan of God. And this demon in particular convulses the son, just going to do anything he can. You'll see the second time... Um, Verse 25, you saw him in, uh, you see it in, first of all, verse 15. It says, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. So you have the immediate people in the area coming together, a great multitude, and people come together. Then this happens. And then again in verse 25, Jesus saw the people coming, running together. Now something is really happening, and even those that are farther away, they're still coming. And they're not walking, they're running. Okay, this, this is... I want you to have that picture that there is a crowd and they're just, they're slowly, just slowly, slowly only because it's on foot, but they're coming as quick as they can and the crowd is growing. And here in the midst of it is this boy, young man maybe, who is, you know, the spirit uh, convulses him. He falls on the ground, wallowing, foaming at his mouth. His father asked, how, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood from childhood. And again, this is a peek into the kingdom of Satan. And you see the power of Satan. God has just showed you the power of God on the mountain. Now he takes you down and he shows you the opposite. A family who is home, and maybe mom and dad are in sin, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to go beyond what scripture is written, but somehow in his childhood, a demon takes control of him. And he has been assaulted by this demon ever since, this boy has. And again, I don't know, young man, maybe, maybe older child, but it's been a while because here he says from childhood. So that he was a child a long time ago. He is now, he's called my son, but that could be any age. He says from childhood. And he adds this, he has often thrown himself into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now this is, you know, we have the two sides portrayed here. You have all the goodness of God portrayed on the mount. Elijah and Moses, the resurrection of the body. And what are they talking to Christ about? Going to the cross. The gift of God in salvation of sending His Son into the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I mean, that is a wonderful gift. And on the other side, we have the demon-possessed child who the demon convulses him and throws him into the water, throws him into the fire, and tries to kill him. And Christ is letting us see the two extremes, the two sides of the kingdom. And I, we had this a little bit in Sunday school as people look and they they reject the law and they reject God and they reject light and they say, you know, 
We want the freedom to do what we want to do. And they fail to realize this is the result of that freedom. It is a destructive lifestyle. It is, it is, a, it is pain. It is sorrow. It is families that are broken. It is, it is heartache. You know that you go ahead and you, you, you partake of sin a little bit. You have Eve who says, oh, you know, if I eat of that fruit, I am going to be wise. It'll taste good and it'll be good for, know, for uh, knowing good and evil and I'll be like God. It'll be great. Everything about it is wonderful. And what did it cause? It caused disagreement between her and Adam. It caused sin to enter the world. It caused, uh, they were ejected from the garden. It caused a curse on the earth. It caused the death of her firstborn son. And all sin that ever happens can be traced back to that root. Now, I'm not saying Eve is directly responsible for everybody's sin. You and I still choose. We still sin. We still hold accountability. But you look at what was promised and what was delivered, and it was not the same. And here is the disciples having a look at the two kingdoms of what is promised in truth. Eternal life with our Lord who loved us. And what is delivered in truth? Controlling by Satan under his power, destroying us. And that is the picture of what sin does. It never comes into our life to help us, to free us, to please us. It comes in to enslave us and destroy us. And it will. And then this man adds this statement at the end of this. It often, it has often, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Then he adds this statement in verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, obviously, I want to make some excuses for this man. I want to say, you know, Christ has done all these miracles, but Christ wasn't there and the disciples failed and his faith has come up short. But Christ is here. Christ is standing in front of him, the King of glory himself. The one who is the eternal word who through him created the heavens and the earth, who fed 5,000 men with a couple of loaves and fishes. And to question his ability is never right. It's never right. And that's what he does. He says, but if you can do anything. Yes, he's asking for help. But you see, there's a, there's a bit of a question there on if you can do anything. And this is why Christ has this unique statement. And he says, if you can believe, all things are possible. Because if you don't have faith in God, you can't please God. Hebrews eleven six. but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and, okay, that the God is, and that he is the rewarder. What's it, how does it end? Of those that diligently seek him in prayer. 
in study of the word. He will meet with you when you seek him with all of your heart. And so when you start to doubt God, it is quite the offense. And so God turns it around on him. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Matthew has an added verse here where he talks about, you can say to this mountain, depart from here and go into the sea and the mountain will go. Because you have had faith in God. Now this doesn't mean you and I are going to have the power to literally cast a mountain out for no reason at all. But it means that in God's strength, doing God's will, God's way, no mountain is going to stand in our way. And that if that were the need, even a mountain would leave physically if we're doing God's work, God's way for him. So he comes on, he asks this, he says, if you can believe. This is not looking, this is a rebuke for that man because his faith is wavered. He has come all this way to come for Jesus and now with the disciples unable to help him, He's starting to question whether or not the Son of God has the power over Satan. And Jesus says, no, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately, praise the Lord for this, the Father cries out with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, I've, I've given the analogy of faith, and I've this is one of the verses that gives me this analogy. You've heard the definition of courage, right? Courage is not the absence of fear, but it's doing the right thing even in the presence of fear. The man who goes charging across the battlefield when the guns are blazing to, to save his, his friends, and he's a lunatic and doesn't understand that he could die, we don't call him a, a courage, a hero, we call him a fool. But the man who knows he's mortal, knows that those bullets could kill him, and still lays down his life or offers to lay down his life by doing the impossible, trying to do the impossible, we call him a hero because he has stood for the Lord. He stood for, he's overcome his fear to do what he needed to do. And it's the same thing with faith. It's not necessarily the absence of some super strong conviction that I've had to work up. It is a knowing this is the Lord and an encouraging of myself, of preaching to myself with God, all things are possible and a determination to hang on and to say, I will not try to seek help elsewhere. This is what he has commanded. I will remain here at the throne of grace until I hear him answer. And we have a father who hears this word and he says, you know, I don't know if I got enough faith. He says, it feels kind of lacking to me. I just, I'm being convicted. God just kind of rebuked me and I got a need. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come beg for Jesus. I'll come to the king. I'll tell him my problems. I'll confess my heart. I believe. I'm determined to believe. But Lord, you've got to help me with my unbelief. You're the one who gives faith. You're the one who has to help me. Lord, I'm clinging to you. 
That's a picture of true faith. Not some arrogant fool who runs through life, but one who clings to the Lord and says, Lord, I got nowhere else to go. And I don't want to go anywhere else. I choose you. Help my unbelief. Help me. When Jesus saw that the people were running together, he rebukes the unclean spirit. He's not here to make a show of it. I believe this is honestly for the disciples so that they can see the reality of the two sides. You have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. When Jesus commands deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, enter him no more. The spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out. It's over. The master has spoken. The king has ruled. I'm going to quit because we've run out of time, but I just want you to think of this. Are our eyes on the reality of the spiritual side of life? Or are they caught up on the physical? Because we all have that same tendency to get caught up on the physical side of life and forget that with God, nothing is impossible. And even if I, do, if I am struggling in my heart, I have the Word of God. And I go to God in prayer and I say, Lord, help my unbelief. Let me stay here until I see the light shine through. Let me stay here to get the answer. Again, I see the, the problem with the disciples. Not that they were unable to do it, but that they gave up. They did not come to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to look. That's his answers when they say, why could we not do it? He said, this kind comes out by nothing but by prayer and fasting. We'll continue on this next week. Let's stand as we close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning. We say thank you for your word. Lord, we just ask that you would continue to encourage us to walk with you. Lord, that we would see you for who you are, that we'd be drawn closer to you. Lord, that our love for you would increase and that our faith for you would increase. And Lord, even if we doubt occasionally or if we have trouble in an area, Lord, may we know you are the one that we are to trust and may we wait patiently at your side. Father, we ask for your help because without you, we can do nothing. And we just ask, Lord, that you would continue to walk with us today. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.